This is the Blossom of Thought podcast, a podcast about the body, mind, and soul. And your host is Impilo Kambule. The statistics of government killing their own people in the 20th and the 21st centuries are appalling. Governments are far more deadly to their own citizens when they hold the monopoly of the use of force. In recent weeks, Eswatini has been put on the spotlight for the massacre of civilians by the government. Democracy now was the plea of the masses and still is the plea before a very stubborn monarch. To discuss liberties, freedoms, and killings of civilians by governments, I'm joined by Aaron Stephen Toming, a U.S. citizen and strategic communication expert. Aaron, welcome, sir. Thank you very much. It's good to be here today. Will you just give us just a high-level abridgment of uh, your life uh, as an American citizen and what you've been doing the past few years? Sure. I, was, uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. And in 2014, I left for Taiwan. Uh, While I was in Taiwan, I was subcontracted by the government to tutor employees at China Chemical and Pharmaceutical Company. So I tutored English. Uh, I also worked at a high school in Tainan City, where I was living. And overall, it was a really positive experience for me. I really enjoyed Taiwan uh, and the people And the time there, it left me with an impression just about like the general quality of life, as well as the personal and political freedoms that people have there. It was a very, Taiwan was a breath of fresh air for me, even coming from the United States. You've lived in Taiwan only or the other countries in the East that you have lived in? Yeah, I lived, I lived in a few countries in East Asia. So I started off in Taiwan and I lived for a period in China. Uh, near Beijing in an area called Feng Tai. And then I went back to Taiwan uh, just because, you know, I had friends there. I loved the work. And honestly, it was a free place. That was a big reason to leave China and go back. And then after a few more years, I left and lived in South Korea and just returned home about a month ago, a little less than a month ago now, to work on some education here in Salt Lake City. You call Taiwan a breath of fresh air as far as democracy is concerned. That seems like you experience something more than what you have ex- experienced in the United States of America. I'm sure from your experience and getting to understand the Taiwanese people, how did they get into such a liberated and democratic country? Will you give us just a background of how they were before they, their democracy matured to the level that you have experienced? Well, of course, uh, Taiwan's democracy is actually relatively new uh, in terms of speaking. They only had their first presidential election in 1996, but they lived under total martial law from 1947 to 1987. And this is something that came up fairly quickly living in Taiwan, just talking to friends um, and talking to people. And then I kind of dove a little bit more into this issue myself. Uh, So for about 40 years, they lived under a situation which they now call the white terror. Uh, People disappeared. Anybody spoke out against the government. They were gone. Anybody spoke for democracy. The police would take them away in the middle of the night. And so there were a lot of issues like this that went on for a long time up. Really, it wasn't until the, the late 70s, early 80s that this even began 
the cracks in the system there began to even show. And democracy, it, it took a while to establish itself and root itself into Taiwan. What were the cracks that you get to learn about as you followed the scholarship and also listening from the citizens? So really what began to change things for the Taiwanese people was um, in the late 70s, countries started shifting diplomatic recognition towards Beijing rather than Taipei. So for, for a long time, Taiwan was under the, as the Republic of China was considered the sole legitimate government of China. So as countries began moving their recognition away, Taiwan began to be isolated and their neighborhood of friends began to shrink smaller and smaller. So the government at this time realized that they had to be a little more subtle in their suppression of dissent. And during that time, magazines, student magazines and small magazines began circulating in Taiwan. And one of these magazines called for just a demonstration for human rights. On December 10th, 1979, Human Rights Day, they wanted to gather in this, uh, it's a southern city in Taiwan called Kaohsiung. They wanted to get together, demonstrate for human rights, and that was it. The government caught wind of what was going on. They sent in plainclothes police officers to basically stir up trouble, beat people, attack uniformed police officers, and create an incident. So basically, the police beat down this demonstration, and eight leaders were arrested, among others. A lot of people were arrested, but prominently eight leaders, they became known as the Kaohsiung Eight, were arrested. They were given life sentences, a lot of them, a few of them. Some of them were given like 50 years. And basically, this began to put the spotlight on democracy in Taiwan and outside of Taiwan. Some of these leaders would actually go on to form some of the first opposition parties once Taiwan would later get democracy. Also around that time, there were a U.S. dual national. So this was a Taiwanese person who became a U.S. citizen. He visited Taiwan. He was a newspaperman. He was killed by the government. Uh, And then another prominent case, there was a professor at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, uh, my hometown, He went to Taiwan, uh, back home to visit family. He had been involved in some human rights activities in the United States. The government back in Taiwan heard about it, and he was dead a few days after arriving in Taiwan. People outside of Taiwan began asking questions. People who knew him, you know, weren't buying the government's official, the guy, oh, he committed suicide. So people began asking questions. People flew in, interviewed people, and it wasn't until... Uh, after Taiwan became a democracy, that it came out that, yeah, actually, he was killed by the government there. So throughout the late 70s, early 80s, this is going on. So the government says, okay, they see that the government, uh, the the populace is becoming, uh, that there's unrest growing there. So the government decides to throw the people a bone and says, you can vote in local elections. You can't have the presidency. You can't have the leadership of the country, but we'll let you vote for your mayor for your, your local leaders in your town. So the, the Taiwanese people, they got a taste of democracy there. Mm. So this was in 1987, martial law was lifted and they began allowing local elections. And once the people tasted it, there was no going back. Local politicians began saying, hey, we should also be having elections for the presidency. 
you know, officially our name is the Republic of China, but we're not a republic. We're, we're run by the military. So they pushed and pushed for it. And in uh, 1996, they finally were allowed to have an open election for the presidency. And that is when Taiwan became a true democracy. And over time, the, the original leaders, the Kuomintang, they were eventually pushed out of power and the opposition took place. Mm. And it's very vibrant there. You see it in the local elections. Every year when there's a local election, the people are, are very energetic about it. Democracy is very important to the Taiwanese people there. I see some resemblance says, between uh, Taiwan and Swaziland. I must mention that uh, Swaziland and Taiwan enjoy really close uh, diplomatic relations. Swaziland is the only country that supports Taiwan in Africa. All the other African states, they are on the mainland China ticket. The resemblance that I want uh, to zero down to here, the Swazis are only allowed to have local elections, electing their own uh, legislators, electing their own mayors or city authorities. That's all that they can do. They do not elect their own prime minister. We have a king there. People refer to him as the last absolute monarchy in Africa. It's because he has got absolute power, executive, legislative, and judicial powers, and even beyond that. So the resemblances here that I see, they seem to be a similar script of dictatorship, that they clamp down on people, people disappear, people are killed, people are beaten, they're thrown into prison, they're given long sentences, others just frustrated, they're not able to get bail, which is a right, the right of innocence until proven guilty. What I, re- I realized in Swaziland, and which is the same thing that had happened in Taiwan when they were going through the dictatorship up until democracy, is that there were people who were attempting to call for democratic reforms. In Swaziland, what has sparked this uprising like never before is that there was a university student that was killed allegedly by police officers under circumstances that are just not clear of exactly what happened. And when that happened, students in Swaziland got out into the streets and other people calling for justice for Taban, the name of the student was Taban. Then three legislators in parliament, they started calling for democratic reforms calling or saying that from their constituencies, people are saying they want an elected prime minister, not one that is appointed by the king. So those are the kind of resemblances that I see between Swaziland and Taiwan. I don't know if you have had some thoughts in relation to that uh, and what happened in Taiwan. Well, they're very similar, actually, on a few levels. First, a lot of the movement for democracy was moved by students in Taiwan. Exactly. So, yeah, in the in the late 70s, a lot of the people who rallied for this Human Rights Day were younger people, people in their you know late teens and early 20s. And how the government tried to crack down on dissent was also very similar, you know, especially early on during the crackdowns on dissent 40 years before that anywhere from 18,000 to 28,000 people were disappeared. Um, anybody who advocated for democracy, the policemen would come and, you know, they would take you know, your father away or your brother away and they just wouldn't come home. And so these were similar. So the, the dream or the aspirations for democracy in Taiwan, they went on almost throughout the entire military dictatorship there. 
when they started the dams, the, the cracks in the dam started forming, though, in the late 70s, it, it was a very similar, you know, demographic, young people that wanted to see change, that wanted to see something better than what their parents had, that had an understanding from the outside world of what democracy was and what other people experienced. And that really pushed them to advocate much stronger for for substantial change, not just lip service. I realized that dictators always resist calls for democracy and they will do anything, including killing their own citizens. And that is known internationally as democide. So as then, there are reports that over 75 people have died. Also, others have been injured, maimed, paralyzed, while hundreds were arrested as a form of crackdown by the government. And obviously, that's the monarch that will issue the command to the army to do all these heinous offenses. Made up by governments is structured occurrence in my judgment. It has occurred in various jurisdictions, as we have mentioned, also Taiwan. And But it has become so grievous in the 28th and the 21st century. Will you give us just some of the statistics, as far as you know, of these phenomena, democides? Well, um, right before I do that, I do want to mention one thing. was um, In Taiwan, before democracy, people didn't realize the scope of how many people actually disappeared. People knew that a lot of people did, but nobody understood just how bad it was until after the event. Um, Throughout the 20th century, though, uh, we've seen a lot of democide. It's actually estimated that during the 20th century worldwide, there has been at least 262 million victims of democide. That's six times more people killed by their own government than have died on the battlefield at war. Democide is the number one cause of unnatural death in the 20th century. So some statistics on this. Um, So some countries uh, in the 20th century that were some well-known genocides, you would be looking at the Armenian genocide, This is where the Young Turks uh, massacred Armenian refugees, people within the Ottoman Empire. You also have genocides inside of the Soviet Union, uh, where upwards of 20 million people were killed. We can also look at the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong. Millions of people. If If you actually take the number of people that Mao killed and divide by the time he was in power, That means one person under Mao Zedong was killed every 26 seconds for his entire rule. Wow. To keep him in comfort and luxury required a human life every 26 seconds. Wow. Guatemala had a crackdown on Mayan Indians where over 100,000 were killed there. And we've seen uh, multiple genocides throughout Africa and Asia. You can think of Pol Pot in Cambodia. Now, so obviously, the big one that a lot of people cite as well is uh, in Nazi Germany, the Holocaust. No, that's and- the famous one that people know. But let's move on in the interest of time and then just talk about some of the civil liberties in the U.S. And for instance, in the United States of America, you have the Second Amendment. And what is states is that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Tell us about that and your experience and how important it is to 
an American citizen, citizen to have the Second Amendment? Well, as an American, we view that liberty as sort of the foundation or the linchpin of the other liberties. So it's one thing to say, you know, I have the right to free speech. But if somebody, you know, a government officer is pointing a gun at you and saying, no, you don't, your free speech is gone or your religion is gone. Without the Second Amendment to defend that, those rights and those civil liberties can be taken away from us. So even the United States itself, we wouldn't exist had that right not pre-existed our own country. Uh, you know, our founding fathers were Englishmen, and they found that right in the 1688 Bill of Rights, which was an English law that allowed every Englishman to own a, a weapon. Later on, that allowed us to to basically throw out the crown and to establish our own country. And so our founding fathers recognizing that without that civil liberty, we would not have a country enshrine that in our own Bill of Rights. It's kind of interesting. So those genocides that I mentioned to you before, before those genocides happened, one of the first things that the government did was it disarmed its own populace. A lot of people don't realize that in the Soviet Union, gun ownership was a thing before Stalin's purges and the, the killings in, in the Soviet Union. In Germany, people could own weapons. Hitler disarmed the local populace before killing 6 million people. In Guatemala, they had a gun control program in 1964 before killing 100,000 man Indians. Uganda's gun control program began in 1970, right before an eight-year program of exterminating Christians. So these are things that preceded these genocides, basically. So we, as Americans, we not get... Only, very... Not only genocide, but uh, democide, as we've been speaking about. Genocide and democide. Yeah, these were their own citizens that they were killing by the millions. China, they disarmed their own citizens before millions were killed. Pol Pot, these people, the first thing that they, they wanted to get rid of was the right to bear arms because they knew that once they instituted their programs, once they began these democides, if the people were armed, they would rise up. They would stop these democides. And so that was kind of like a levy or, you know, a break to the last, basically the, the right to bear arms is the last break of a dictatorial government. Once they're going to take everything away from you, they need to make sure that you can't defend it. You don't have a privilege to life. You have a right to life. But the, any government that says your life is a privilege is going to try to take away your right to bear arms. Otherwise, they won't be able to do it. People would rise up. There would be a rebellion. I'm sure the citizens of Swaziland will entertain when amending the constitution, which is what they are calling for, amongst other things. Maybe consider a discussion about having an inroad of the Second Amendment into the new constitution that they are calling for. As I hear you, this becomes a very important uh, constitutional right in order to protect yourself. In fact, as uh, Thomas Jefferson will say, this gives the citizens the right to call out a government that is no longer serving their own interest, particularly a, a tyrannical government. I would say that, like, to exercise, you know, our right to self-preservation, this is fundamental. This is, you know, a basic human right that you have a right for someone to not take your life away. You have a right to make sure that the police, without a lawful warrant, cannot enter your home. And so, like, 
it's a check against those. Like there's a natural order to government. A government is supposed to represent us, not rule over us. And so like the right to bear arms makes sure that that balance stays in place. Because once you take away, you know, the right of the people to have force to defend themselves, only the government has it. And it just, it knocks everything out of balance. So for me, yeah, that, that, that's basically, it's foundational to the rest of our rights as American citizens. Aaron, thank you so much for coming through and discussing these uh, issues that uh, give some comparative analysis of the freedoms and liberties and also democides, which is government killing its own people uh, throughout history and particularly in the 28th and 21st century. It's, that seems to have uh, escalated. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here today.